Over the last 16 months, our attention has understandably been captivated by the life-changing circumstances that have gripped the world and our own nation. And maybe you've noticed just how much this is the case in the conversations that we have with one another and how easy it is to default to talking about the latest case numbers, talking about the latest government announcement or vaccine rollout or lockdowns or reopenings and so on. And maybe even this morning already in the conversations that you had with one another, it was so easy to occupy our interactions with those considerations. Of course, I understand this. I get that this has affected us all in world-altering ways, and there is a need to think and talk and process what, is ha- what has happened, what is happening, and what is going to happen. Yet as significant as all of this has been, there are matters of greater importance. And I don't say this to minimize what anyone has gone through this last little while. That would be wrong. Rather, I say this to maximize what our focus is going to be in today's sermon. This morning, I'm pausing our series in Genesis for one week after 66 Sundays since our whole church has gathered in one place at one and one time so that we can collectively draw our attention to that which matters most, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So much vies for our attention. So much has captured our interest this last while that on this occasion I have no other desire than to highlight Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, who is the firstborn of all creation, the one through whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. For he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. He in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through whom God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because we who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, it is Christ who has now reconciled, God who has now reconciled in Christ's body of flesh by his death, so that we might be presented as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, Paul writes, we continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. The only way that we can do this, the only way to keep tracking in a Christward direction is to keep the gospel front and center. And this morning, that is our aim, to focus on that which is of first importance so that we run the race before us, so that we come before the throne of God and the Lamb in the end. Keeping the gospel front and center is what keeps us tracking in a Christward direction. And for our text this morning, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's in your your bulletin, your program. If you have that, if you don't have a Bible, or if you're turning in your Bible, it's 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be covering verses 1 through 11. 
And if you get warm, I'm warmer. <laughs> so I'll just keep that in mind. First Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Let's pray and then we will read the text together and work our way through it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we praise and glorify your name for your goodness and kindness to us in this gathering here this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and the sun that is shining and the breeze that is uh, refreshing us. Thank you, Lord, for the, the blessing of hearing your people sing and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Thank you, Lord, for the reading of your word. And I pray now that you would be pleased, you who said, let light shine in darkness. I pray that you would be pleased through your word to illuminate our hearts by your spirit so that we would understand and believe and obey what your word says. I pray for any here this morning who are not Christians, Lord, that you especially would speak light into their hearts and open up their eyes to see your glory in the face of Christ. So, Lord, help the preaching of your word, I pray, for your glory and for that of your son whom you love and to whose, things you have given, whose hands you have given all things. For we ask these things in his, his name and all of God's people will say amen first corinthians 15 verse 1 through 11 paul writes now i would remind you brothers and sisters of the gospel i preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word i preached to you unless you believed in vain for i delivered to you as of first importance what i also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Brothers and sisters, again, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The way the Apostle Paul introduces this concluding section of his letter reinforces that what he's doing here is fronting and centering the gospel. He's covered a lot of ground with this church that he previously spent 18 months with, as we know from the book of Acts. And he wrote to them about all sorts of topics, about divisions in the church, his ministry as an apostle, the defilement of sexual immorality, the scandal of taking other Christians to court, instructions on marriage, the freedom of the conscience, warnings against idolatry, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, love, orderly worship. As I said, he covered a lot of 
ground. Yet before he winds down this letter, he winds up to the gospel with a particular emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what's strange about this introduction of this section of the letter is that though he's writing to make known to them, he's writing to make known to them something he's already made known to them. He says right there in verse 2, this is, he tells them of the gospel that I preached to you, which seems a rather odd way to address a church that he writes about at the outset of his letter as follows. He says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if that's who he's writing to, why take up time and space and ink to remind them of truths that they already believe? Why not tell them something new? Why not dig a little deeper into the, uh, beyond the basics of the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ? Isn't this like the kindergarten level? Why are we going back here, Paul? The reason is because there are countless ways for us to get off track. And when we get off track, the basics of the gospel we must always return to. And because our tendency is to get off track daily, sometimes multiple times a day, the gospel must always be front and center to keep us tracking in a Christward direction. That's what Paul does. At this climactic conclusion to this lengthy letter, turns the attention of the Corinthians back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, especially the resurrection. Because on this keystone of salvation, some of them were out picking daisies in left field when they should have been up to bat at home plate. And so Paul, by way of reminder, seeks to give them a course correction. Keeping the gospel front and center keeps us tracking in a Christward direction by keeping us firstly from, from spiritual amnesia. And spiritual amnesia then leads to spiritual anemia. And we grow weak and feeble and frail as we go through life. And so regular gospel refreshers prevent us from losing sight of what matters most. Keeping the gospel front and center keeps us from spiritual amnesia. The word gospel, in case anyone doesn't know, means good news. And Paul is saying, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I preach to you, the good news I proclaim to you, the message of salvation in Jesus Christ that I told you about. Paul received a message about how it is that sinful human beings such as we are could ever hope to have everlasting relationship with our holy creator. And Paul devoted his life to tell as many people as possible about this, as, uh, including those who now belong to the church of God in Corinth. In a few moments, we'll get to the content of this good news in verses 3 to 8. Three to eight. But Paul initially rehearses the experience of the Corinthians with the gospel for their own benefit. And notice the progression there in verses 1, 2, and 3. First, they heard the gospel, I preach to you. Second, they believed the gospel, which you received. Third, their lives were now embedded in the grand story of God, who through Jesus is redeeming and restoring everything that sin has destroyed. He says, this is the gospel in which you stand. And then fourth, 
He reminds them that they are continuing to be transformed until the day the work of God began in them is completed. He writes, this is the good news by which you are being saved. And so long as they persevere in their profession, which is indication of God's preserving those who truly belong to Christ, as long as they persevere, that is what will happen in the end. Unless their profession is vain and empty of that of following Christ. Continuing to hold fast to God's word isn't what saves us, but if we are not continuing to hold fast to God's word, well, we may not have actually repented and trusted Christ to begin with, which warrants serious and immediate investigation. Now, Paul's writing to the Corinthians this way raises a very specific question. Where would we place ourselves in this progression? Everyone here this morning, because of what you are about to hear, can place themselves at least at the first progression point. You are hearing the gospel preached. On the day of judgment, the record will show that on June 20th, 2021, you came under the sound of the good news about Jesus Christ. That may be the first time that's happened in your life. This may be the hundredth time that has happened. But either way, we can all check that box. I have heard the preaching of the gospel. Now, many of us will be able to check the second box. I also believe the gospel. I believe what God has done through Jesus Christ. I believe that it is true. I have turned from my sin and trusted in Christ. I have repented. I have believed. I have received the truth that I'm a sinner, that I deserve nothing more than hell, that my salvation required the death of Christ. And apart from this, I could never be reconciled to the God who made me for himself. And if you haven't believed that, I hope to God that today you would trust in Christ and your sins would be blotted out and you would receive times of refreshment from God that he has given to us in and through his precious son. Now, if you have received the good news, if you have received Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you can check box one, you can check box two, and you can check boxes three and four as well. Not only have you heard the gospel, you have received the gospel, you stand in the gospel, and you are being saved by the gospel. But this is where functional amnesia begins to settle in when we don't keep the gospel front and center. This is where we begin to get off track when we don't keep the good news the main thing. Whether you've been Christian for a long time or a short time, there have been times when we have all lived as though we are not standing in the gospel, as though we are not able to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next in growing conformity to the image of Christ. Let me illustrate it this way. It was about a year ago, last summer, we were pulling out of the, the, the subdivision where we live. And for some reason, my wife and I were in both, separate, uh, both of our vehicles. And she drew the short straw. She had all the kids uh, in the car on her own. And I drew the other short straw because I was left with the minivan. 
And so we're, we're pulling out of our subdivision, and Meredith is in front, and I'm behind. And in between us, and this is the reason I remember this occurrence, in between us, there was a Lamborghini Gallardo. And this isn't a reflection of where we live, by the way, just for the record. <laughs> and all I could see ahead of me is one of my boys hanging his hat out the window, drooling because of the sports car, and he's waving madly at the driver who waves back, and I'm sure he felt like a boss because, you know, he's getting attention with the car that he's driving. And what happens is the light turns green, and traffic starts flowing, and eventually this little entourage with me trailing in the rear in my minivan merges onto Franklin Boulevard, and I hang back behind the Lamborghini because, you know, it's as close as I'm going to get. And uh, so I'm driving along, but I didn't stay close to him for very long, and not for the reason that you might think. The Lamborghini didn't leave me behind in a trail of dust. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Before going too long down Franklin Boulevard, I had to switch lanes, pull up beside this guy, and pass him because he was doing 40 in a 60. And did I mention he was driving a Lamborghini? Here I am, sailing past in my 2010 Dodge Grand Caravan with the dry Cheerio upholstery upgrade, and I'm overtaking 520 horsepower that can go 0 to 60 in 3.9 seconds and reach a top speed of 196 miles an hour. I'm driving by this guy with half a mind of rolling down my window and saying, dude, it's a Lamborghini, what are you doing? Many times since that bizarre moment, I've thought too often, too often I have lived the Christian life like the guy driving that Lamborghini. Too often we have lived the Christian life this way, forgetting that we're driving through life in this vehicle of the gospel, and we travel as though it lacks the power to get us where we need to go. And yet, and yet under the hood of the gospel, the power of God is at work. The power of God that regenerated us, bringing us from a state of spiritual deadness to life. The power of God that effectually called us such that it was irresistible for us to believe the beautiful gospel invitation. The power of God that converted us, turning us from idols to serve the living and true God. The power of God that justified us, declaring us righteous on the basis of Christ's perfect life and sacrifice. The power of God that adopted us such that children of wrath now become children of God. The power of God that sanctified us, setting us apart as holy unto our God. If upon hearing the gospel we have received the gospel, then we stand in the gospel and we are being saved by it. And the power of God himself is at work for our ongoing transformation. You know this, right? The power of God is at work to forgive us when we voluntarily plunge into the ditch of sin again. The power of God is at work to make us uncomfortable in sin so that we confess and seek out the forgiving grace of a loving Father. The power of God is at work to transform us so that the allure of sin lessens over time. And when we are constantly reminded of the gospel, we are kept from the onset of spiritual amnesia. And by faith, we put our foot to the floor because we know that the power of gospel is at work under the hood to keep us tracking in a Christward direction. 
A second way, keeping the gospel front and center keeps us tracking in a Christward direction is as follows. Keeping the gospel front and center keeps us from spiritual rabbit trails. You know those people on the highway when you're driving and there's an accident? call them rubberneckers and they just they, they forget they're, they're in a vehicle and they forget that they're on a road and they forget where they're going and they're just looking at what is happening all around them and sometimes that causes another catastrophe keeping the gospel front and center keeps us from getting off track on all of these different spiritual rabbit trails that can uh, take our attention away from what matters most of all that Paul has written to the Corinthians about, one topic rises above all the others. One topic informs all the others. It's the gospel. This is what he says in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul is a gospel fanatic. He just won't change his mind about changing the subject, and he'll never change the subject. The first three chapters of Ephesians are gospel. The first two chapters of Colossians are gospel. The first 11 chapters of Romans are gospel. Paul begins writing to the Corinthians saying, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then he ends with extended focus on the resurrection. And now we come to the content of this gospel reminder of what is first importance, of what should be kept front and center to keep us from spiritual amnesia and from spiritual rabbit trails. It is Christ himself. Someone writes of these verses, uh, verses 3 to 8. Paul's recounting of the gospel message reflects the fact that it is first and foremost a message about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us rather than being a message primarily about us and how we can be saved. For the grammarians in the congregation this morning, Christ is the subject of almost all the verbs from verses 3b down to verse 8. And four of them summarize the gospel. Christ died, verse 3. Christ was buried, verse 4. Christ was raised, verse 4. And Christ appeared, which is verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, Christ appeared. And you'll notice that there are a few layers, three layers in Paul's keeping the gospel front and center. The first layer is historical. To say that Christ died, was buried, was raised, and appeared to actual eyewitnesses locates the gospel in time and space. We are being reminded as of first importance that these events actually occurred in a place that you can get on a plane and go to sometime in the distant future. This is not, dear friends, presented as mythology or allegory, but as history. Multiple people witnessed with their own eyeballs that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified outside of Jerusalem, including Roman soldiers who were the leading experts in dealing out death. They knew how to tell when someone was gone. Multiple people also witnessed Jesus' burial. The location of his tomb was no secret. 
The woman who were, who were by Jesus when he died on the cross saw the place where his body was laid. The Jews asked for a guard to be put over the tomb so that no one would come and take the body and, and uh, it starts some type of rumor that somehow Jesus had risen from the dead. But when the tomb proved to be empty on the third day and the body of Jesus could not be produced, they had to start their own rumor, paying off soldiers that, that to say, tell your superior officers that you fell asleep and the disciples came and stole the body so that they wouldn't be punished for uh, something that never actually even happened. And meanwhile, as this is all going on, Jesus, Paul says, is appearing to all sorts of people. They're not mentioned here, but first he comes to the woman who went to anoint his body on the, early on the, the first day of the week, which is a striking feature of the gospel record, because in that time and place, wrongly, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. So if you were going to build a movement on a faked resurrection, woman as first eyewitnesses is not the way you would go about it, and yet that is the historical record in scripture. And as Paul identifies here, the risen Jesus appeared to Peter, then to the rest of the apostles in verse 5. On one occasion, as we read in verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 men at once. And what Paul says is an epic failure if the resurrection didn't happen in verse 6. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, if you want, you can go and you can track down these people and you can interview them yourself. Paul's saying, go ahead. And I love this thought. I don't know how many people are here this morning, but I suppose this was a witness stand and we took time to have every single person come up here and testify, I saw Jesus alive with my own eyes. Can you imagine that in a court of law? And how compelling such witness testimony would be to a jury on looking and thinking, okay, this many people saw him alive at the same time? That outdistances the evidence of two or three witnesses by, you know, 496 or seven. And I love this compelling aspect of Christianity. If you're not a Christian, God has worked in time and space and invites investigation for ourselves. There were eyewitnesses. There are extensive written records. There are thousands of manuscripts written in close time to the Gospels and letters, which were written close in time to the events themselves. In the realm of history, the Bible belongs in an elite category with no other document coming remotely close. And there's also the track record of the transformations that the resurrection of Jesus brought about. Paul writes in verses 7 to 9, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. If you read the Gospels for yourselves, you'll know that Peter said, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to fishing. Thomas doubted that the others had seen him because he didn't see Jesus for himself. James, the half-brother of Jesus, thought Jesus was nuts before his death and his resurrection. And then there's Paul, or Saul, hunting down Christians after condoning the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen, thinking that he was serving God by putting Christians in prison. And then every single one of these men were radically transformed after the resurrection of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. They took to the very streets 
and preach to the gospel to the very people who demanded that Jesus be crucified. They endured imprisonment, they endured beatings, almost all of them laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel. Paul went from persecutor to preacher almost overnight after Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road. And the only way to account for this is history. Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. And keeping this front and center is what keeps us in a Christward direction. The second layer of Paul's keeping the gospel front and center to keep us from spiritual rabbit trails is theological. And Christ died is history. Christ died for our sins is theology. Jesus' death on the cross has enormous significance. And the songwriter put it so well, was it for sins that I had done? He suffered on the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. When we eat and drink together shortly, we're not merely remembering the event of Jesus' death. We are remembering the accomplishment of Jesus' death, that in our place, he died. The penalty of our sin, he bore. The wrath that we deserved, he endured. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. In our eating and drinking, we are nourished as a means of grace in the application of what Jesus' death accomplished. As Paul writes earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Through faith, we are united to him such that his death for our sins is applied to our account, canceling the dead that stood against us. The record of his perfect life is also applied to our account by which we are declared righteous in the court of heaven. Jesus died, brothers and sisters, for our sins. The Lamb of God, a lamb without spot or blemish, a perfect lamb shedding blood more precious than the world's collective wealth, he died for us. This theological understanding of the historical crucifixion is, of course, no surprise to the reader of Scripture. Christ died as historical. Christ died for our sins as theological. And Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures is biblical. Notice he says that twice in verses 3 and 4. And this is the third layer of Paul's keeping the gospel front and center to keep us from spiritual rabbit trails. As we look for Jesus on every page of the Bible. History centers on Jesus dying and rising. Theology centers on Jesus dying and rising. The scriptures center on Jesus dying and rising. And he said so himself to the disciples. He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Historic moments are not unimportant to us. Election outcomes are not unimportant to us. Hammering out our political theology is not unimportant. 
Debating the pros and cons of lockdowns are not unimportant. Researching the efficacy of masks and vaccines is not unimportant. But if any of those compete with the first importance of Christ dying for our sins according to the scriptures and being raised in accordance with the scriptures, if anything competes with that, then we have veered off course and we need to be back on track once more. For at the end of the day, we want to be known as Christians and as a church for being all about the gospel more than anything else. So in our interactions, following the service this morning, leave all of those topics to the side and talk about the Lord. Marvel at what he has done for us. Enjoy part of the inheritance that we have been given each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's been so long since we enjoyed the fullness of that. Keep the gospel front and center as you encourage one another after before we go. And when we live and breathe within these layers Paul weaves together, he provides a guardrail that keeps us from the countless tangents that divert our focus from what matters most. Keeping the gospel front and center keeps us from spiritual amnesia, keeps us from spiritual rabbit trails, both of which keep us tracking in a Christward direction. And thirdly, keeping the gospel front and center also keeps us from spiritual pride. Keeping the gospel front and center keeps us from spiritual pride. Here, Paul puts himself in his rightful place, and in doing so, he puts the Corinthians in their rightful place as well. Paul was a recipient of grace. They are recipients of grace who received the gospel from a recipient of grace, and we ourselves are recipients of grace also. And when we keep the gospel front and center, it keeps us from spiritual pride. Notice that theme well in the contrasts of verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. Paul describes his becoming an apostle in a very unusual way. He says that his becoming an apostle was like an untimely birth. The term refers to a, a miscarriage or a stillbirth or perhaps to a weak, sick baby born premature, fighting for its very life. At best, Paul describes his condition at the time of Christ appearing to him as pitiful, as hopeless, maybe even beyond hope. He was dead spiritually. And as the last appointment to the unique circle of apostles, an eyewitness to the resurrection, he calls himself the least unworthy because of the monstrous way he persecuted Christ by attacking Christians. But, 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 a beautiful word. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. As a result of this grace, whether in the other apostles or in Paul, they preached the gospel, and as a result of this, the Corinthians believed. He didn't go out and find it. They didn't go out and find it. We didn't go out and find it either. God gave this to the apostles as a gift. Opened their eyes to the truth of the gospel as a gift. Who preached it to others as a gift. 
who then told others whose eyes were also open to the truth of the gospel as a gift and all the way down to the here and now the gospel has come to us as a gift and as the body wilts in the heat and light of the sun so pride wilts in the light and warmth of the gospel humility and not pride thrives when the gospel is kept front and center for when the gospel is kept front and center it's never about what we have done it is always about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus and I am so grateful for this because it keeps us from creating a cult of personality around ourselves and it keeps us from veering off track to follow a cult of personality which is what the Corinthians were doing some were saying I follow Paul oh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm aligned with Apollos no I'm with, I'm with Cephas and the super spiritual people I follow Christ and Paul says to them was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? On the contrary, when keeping the gospel front and center, we are loosed from self-love and focus, and we are freed by the grace of God to fervent aspiration for Christ's sake. That's why Paul says in verse 10, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. I read a stirring book this week. I would encourage you to pick a copy up of. It's a book by Milton Vincent called A Gospel Primer for Christians. He writes this. I want to read it to you. I've, I've never heard anyone say anything like this before. He says, The gospel nourishes within me a holy brazenness to believe what God says, enjoy what he offers, and do what he commands. Admittedly, I don't deserve to be a child of God, and I don't deserve to be free of sin's guilt and power. I don't deserve the staggering privilege of ministry, of intimacy with God, nor any other blessing that Christ has purchased for me with his blood. I don't even deserve to be useful to God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and I have what I have, and I hereby resolve not to let any portion of God's grace prove vain in me. And to the degree that I live, fail to live up to this resolve, I will boldly take for myself the forgiveness that God says is mine and continue walking in his grace. And then he writes this, boldness is critical. Without boldness, my life story will be one of great deeds left undone, victories left unwon, petitions left unprayed, and timely words unsaid. If I wish to live only a pathetically small portion of the life God has prepared for me, then I need no boldness. But if I want my life to bloom full, full and large for the glory of God, then I must have boldness. And nothing so nourishes boldness in me like the gospel. That's why we keep it front and center. This is how Paul was able to work so hard. The freedom and power of grace were ever before his eyes. And it kept him tracking in a Christward direction. And if we keep the gospel front and center, it will keep us tracking in that same direction as well but the obvious and unanswered question remains how how do we do this well for your encouragement you're doing it right now gathering with the church for Christ-centered worship and preaching 
I know some of you are in a season where you are transitioning between churches for various reasons. And in your search for a place to call a church home, you find Christ-centered preaching and worship. And when you find, give yourself no rest until you find it if it's not here. And when you find it, you commit yourself to that congregation and building it up with the gifts that God has given to you by his grace. And if we as Christians must miss the occasional gathering of the church, make sure it isn't Sundays where we observe the Lord's Supper, gathering around the Lord's table that we'll do in a minute keeps the gospel front and center. Now, I assume that that's pretty obvious. Although the importance of those things cannot be overstated. But what about the six other days of the week between the Lord's days? I want to leave you with a scene from the Chronicles of Narnia, which comes to mind. Boys and girls, maybe you've read that book, or mom and dad, or grandparents have read it to you. And I think I've talked with some of you about this personally, individually. I don't think I've mentioned it in a sermon. If I do, then I have, then, well, you've probably forgotten anyway. It's the scene in the silver chair where Jill is given a task by Aslan, the slain but risen lion, who gives her a drink from the only stream that will quench her thirst. And he says that he is a lion who has swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. And to aid Jill in her quest of finding the lost prince, Aslan gives Jill four signs to look for that will guide her in completing this task. And the first step to her succeeding, the lion instructs, is to remember the signs. And so he has her repeat them in order. And it says Jill tried and she didn't get them quite right. So the lion corrected her and made her repeat them again and again until she could say them perfectly. And he was very patient over this. And then Aslan goes on to stress the importance of this. He, he says to her, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself. When you wake up in the morning, and when you lie down at night, and when you wake in the middle of the night, and whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And he gives her a warning, and it's crucial. He says, here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. It will not be so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear, your mind is clear, but as you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care. It does not confuse your mind. And the signs that you have learned here will not look all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. The reason that's so important for us to understand is because it's easier here, isn't it? When we're surrounded by like-minded brothers and sisters and we hear the stirring sound of their songs in our ears and all of the labor, most of the labor has been done to point us in a Christward direction and we're together in triumphant song. But Monday morning pressure will come hard and fast, won't it? Fatigue of caring for crying little ones will roll around sometime over the course of the week. 
Friday night loneliness will drive us to indulge in sinful satisfaction and weekend peer pressure to get wasted things on our phone. That's why we need to know and remember the signs because the air that we breathe is thick from the world and the flesh and the devil. And so what we need to do is to say to ourselves and to say to one another the gospel, which is of first importance. Preach it to your own mind. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you say something like to yourself, Sean, this world and this universe was created by God and for him. He is the creator, the holy creator of all. He created you for his glory, but you have turned and rebelled against him in your sin, and you deserve his judgment and wrath. But in his mercy and his kindness, he sent Christ to purchase you, and you are no longer your own. Christ is living in you by the Spirit. So go through this day knowing the power of the Spirit to help you in everything that you do, and you tell yourself that again and again, and again, and again, and it will keep you tracking in a Christward direction. Set a daily reminder on your phone. Preach the gospel to yourself. Write out a summary of the gospel and carry it in your pocket and review it through the day as you need. Get one of the people in our church who are so good at creating those home stylish decor signs and get one made that says, preach the gospel to yourself today. And you're welcome for the extra business, whoever is out there. Do whatever it takes, brothers and sisters, to remember, remember, remember what God has done in Christ to save us. Keep that front and center, and that will keep us tracking in a Christward direction. That's how Paul concludes this chapter of his letter. After expounding on the glory of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and us being raised with him when he comes, he says these words, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.